Well, good morning. good morning. As always, it is a great privilege to have this opportunity to worship our God together and also to preach to you from God's holy and sufficient word. Well, this morning we are going to be returning to our series in Ephesians, picking up where we left off. And so I ask you, if you would, please turn with me to the book of Ephesians and chapter number three. Our primary text this morning is going to be Ephesians 3, verses 1 through 6, and the title of today's sermon is The Mystery Revealed. Well, because we have been out of this book for the past three weeks, I believe it would be beneficial for us to remind you where we have been in our study of Ephesians before we read our text this morning. Now, of course, we have covered chapters 1 and 2 of the book of Ephesians, and so I want to take some time showing you how the truths taught in these chapters correspond with the eternal purposes of God. And I want to do this by showing how, in many ways, the glorious realities of what we see being worked out for us in Ephesians 1 and 2 are the answer to the prayer of Jesus in His high priestly prayer recorded for us in John 17. And so if you would, please be ready to flip back and forth between John 17 and Ephesians 1 and 2. So I want to discuss the following truths as we see them in John 17 and Ephesians and see how they set the stage for our text this morning. Those three truths are as follows. First, the message of Scripture as it relates to the bringing of individual sinners into covenant fellowship with God. Secondly, the message of Scripture as it relates to the bringing of saints into covenant fellowship with one another. And thirdly, the message of Scripture as it relates to the plan of God in Christ to unite all things in heaven and on earth. So Ephesians 1 and 2 are in many ways a grand statement on the primary truths of the Christian faith. In these two chapters, we see why the message of the gospel is such good news. And and why is it good news? What does the message of the gospel offer? What it offers is reconciliation to and subsequent fellowship with the one true God. And this concept of fellowship with God has been a consistent theme in almost all of my sermons the past several months because, quite frankly, I have seen how fundamental and central this is to the message of salvation, and I simply cannot get away from it. I see it on every page of Scripture and behind every point of theology. And this is part of the content of Jesus' high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. If you would, notice verse 3 of that chapter. Where it says that eternal life is to know the one true God. And so Jesus prays for this reality that His people would come to know the one true God. That's what His prayer is in John 17. And we see this prayer of Jesus being answered by God in the message of Ephesians. The gospel message is a message that that declares that God gives to His people eternal life, and this eternal life is defined not so much in quantitative terms, that is, it being a life that is eternally lasting, but rather it is defined qualitatively by pointing to the very substance of what this life is. That is, eternal life is to have fellowship with the one true God. And who is it that this life, this eternal life, is offered to? Well, in Ephesians it tells us that eternal life is offered and given to sinners. Ephesians 2 says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, and were by nature children of wrath. And whose wrath was that? It was the very wrath of God. Further, we see in the first two chapters of Ephesians, that it is not teaching that you, have, that you have God as the offended party and that you have man as the offending party and that the gospel is that man has to do something to cause God to turn to man and be reconciled to man. That is not what we see in the book of Ephesians. That is not the way that Jesus' prayer is answered. That is the message of all the false religions that teach a works-based salvation. No, what we see in Ephesians is the reality that the one who is seeking and achieving reconciliation is God Himself. 
that salvation is a result of the sovereign grace of God on behalf of mankind, and in particular, on behalf of His people that He has chosen. And so we see in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, that the plan of salvation began in eternity past. We see that God's people have been chosen in Christ before the very foundation of the world. Therefore, what we begin to understand as we read the book of Ephesians is that the whole message and structure of special revelation, that is the Scriptures, is that God the Father has chosen to save a people in His Son by the power of the Spirit and all of this to be a display of His glorious grace. And so we see in Ephesians 1 the Trinitarian work of salvation, that is, the work of salvation is a work of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And this work of salvation is founded upon the very covenant of redemption which is itself founded in the very beauty, majesty, and glory of the nature and being of God Himself. Our confession, will put it like this in chapter 7, paragraph 3. It says, This covenant, this covenant being referred to as the covenant of grace, this covenant is revealed in the gospel. And so the message of the gospel is the very message of the covenant of grace. This message, it says, is revealed, first of all, to Adam in the promise of salvation by the seed of the woman, that is Genesis 3.15, which you might say is, is the gospel in seed form, and afterwards by farther steps, that is by the covenants of promise in the Old Testament, until the full discovery thereof was completed in the New Testament. And we haven't even gotten to our text yet this morning, but that's what our text is about this morning. The full discovery of this mystery, this message concerning the covenant of grace. It goes on to say this covenant, this covenant of grace, which is revealed to us in the message of the gospel, is founded in that eternal covenant transaction that was between the Father and the Son about the redemption of the elect. And so we see the very foundation for the whole message of Scripture being revealed for us in Ephesians chapter 1. And the whole message is the message of salvation and reconciliation for all those who are united to Christ. And so we see that consistent theme throughout Ephesians 1, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. So as you read through Ephesians 1, you will see that all the spiritual blessings that flow from God's covenant of grace with sinners comes by virtue of union with Christ. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one can come to the Father but through Him. The only way that a sinner can be reconciled to God and therefore enter into covenant relationship with the one true God which is the very definition of eternal life, is to be brought into union with Christ by faith. Now why is it that Christ is the only way and that faith in Him is the only way to be saved or to be, or to be brought into this covenant relationship with God? Because the gospel message is a message that displays the love and the wisdom of God in and through the person and work of Jesus Christ. The gospel message offers salvation based upon the active and the passive obedience of Christ. And so in this, the person and work of Christ, we see God solving our two great problems that prevent us from having fellowship with Him. On the one hand, we have a great sin problem. And this is dealt with in the passive obedience of Christ and His death on the cross where He paid the penalty for our sins and in so doing satisfied the justice of God. And on the other hand, we have a problem in that we lack a positive righteousness. In order to have fellowship with a holy God, we must be holy. We must be perfectly righteous to be in fellowship with God. For what fellowship does light have with darkness? And so our great problem is that we lack this. We fall short of the glory of God. But this problem is dealt with in the covenant that God has made. It is dealt with through what is called the active obedience of Christ. So we realize that Christ not only died for us, but He also lived for us. He lived a perfect life of obedience, and through our union with Him, by faith, His perfect life of obedience is credited to our accounts, and we are thereby declared righteous by God, just as Christ was emphatically declared righteous by God when He raised Him from the dead on the third day. And so in the gospel, we have reconciliation with God because the barriers that kept us away 
have been brought down by the very powerful grace of God. And so the plan or covenant of God made before the foundation of the world is that He would save sinners through the person and work of Christ, thereby displaying His great grace. This is what we see in Ephesians 2, where it says in verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might, sh- he might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And so the first truth revealed for us in Ephesians 1 and 2 is that God has made a plan or covenant to save sinners by His sovereign grace and thus bring them in to fellowship with Himself through the person and work of Christ Jesus. Now, this glorious message is to be preached to individual sinners to let them know that their greatest problem is that they are without God and without hope in the world because they are estranged from Him because of their sins. But in Christ, the way to fellowship with God has been opened and behind this good news is the love and covenant faithfulness of God Himself. The second truth I want to remind you of that we are taught in the first two chapters of Ephesians is the truth that although the message of salvation is for individual sinners to be reconciled to God, that the end goal of God in the salvation of sinners is not just that they would be brought into fellowship with Himself, but that His people would also be brought into covenant fellowship with one another. And so we see the corporate nature of Christianity and the focus on the church in Ephesians 1 and 2. Again, this was part of the content of Jesus' prayer in John 17, where he prays repeatedly that God would make his people one. He prays in John 17, 11, Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. And Paul makes it evident that we see Jesus' prayer being answered in Ephesians 1, verse 15, where he says, that he thanks God for the Ephesians. Why? Because of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, their covenant fellowship with God, and because of their love for all the saints, their fellowship with one another, and the one another being the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see Jesus' prayer being answered for us in Ephesians 1. We see further that Jesus' prayer in John 17 reveals the eternal purposes of God And that this plan always included more than just the Jews. He prays in John 17, 20, the following, I do not ask for these only, not just his Jewish disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. And that most certainly includes the Gentiles, including the Ephesian believers, that they may all be one. This is the message of of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22 which makes it crystal clear that God's plan was to break down the greatest, the greatest barrier in all of human relationships, which was the barrier between Jew and Gentile. Ephesians makes it clear that God's desire was to bring Jews and Gentiles together as the one people of God, so that they would have fellowship with God and fellowship with one another. And so the first truth we have seen is this, that Jesus' prayer that his people who have been given to him in the covenant of redemption would be brought into covenant fellowship with God, that this prayer has been and is being realized. The second truth we see is this, that Jesus' prayer, that his people, both Jew and Gentile, who have been given to him in the covenant of redemption, would be brought into covenant fellowship with one another. And this also, this prayer has also been, been answered. It has been realized and it is being realized in the institution we call the church. Now, a third truth from Ephesians 1 and 2. We see the plan of God in Christ Jesus is to unite all things in heaven and on earth. In Ephesians 1, verses 9 and 10, we read, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. 
In John 17, Jesus prays two particular things which I think relate very closely here. In verses 1 and 2 of John 17, He prays, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son that the Son may glorify You, since You have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom You have given Him. And so we see the purpose of God set forth in Christ coming to fruition in the fullness of time. As Christ has came and accomplished the work that was given to Him to do, and in so doing, He has reconciled heaven and earth, as it were. Further, we see in John 17, verses 21 through 26, we read the following. Jesus prays that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and love them even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with, may be, be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and those know you that you those and these know you that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. And so we see Jesus here praying for unity between God in heaven and his unified people on earth. Then if you would please notice with me in Ephesians 2, verses 19 through 22 where I think we see the answer to Jesus' prayer being worked out. Verses 19 through 22 of Ephesians 2 states, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in Him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And so here I think we have a third great truth taught in Ephesians. Not only is the plan of God to reconcile individual sinners to Himself so that they could rightly call God their Father, and not only is the plan of God to reconcile sinners to one another, thereby making one body called the church, but even more glorious than that is the plan of God to come and to make His forever dwelling place amongst these people. God, as we speak, is building His dwelling place, which is made up of living stones. Each sinner that is reconciled to God and then joined to the people of God is another stone that God has added to His holy temple, which is and will be the dwelling place of God. And so in a very real way, we see heaven and earth being united together. And all of this is done with Christ as the centerpiece. And Christ is made head over all things to the church, that is, to this holy temple, which is the dwelling place of God. Now, with all of this background behind us, we move to our text for this morning. And I want to consider verses 1 through 6 with you this morning, but for the sake of the literary context, I want to read verses 1 through 13 in your hearing. So let's read together verses 1 through 13 of Ephesians chapter 3. This is God's Word. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of His power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given 
to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be, might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. Let's pause and go to the Lord in prayer. Holy Father, we do pray that you would bless your word. Your people are listening. And so we ask, speak to us. And in so doing, sanctify us. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So we come now to verse 1 of Ephesians chapter 3. But I want you to notice at the end of verse 1, you may notice in your Bible a dash there. Well, the reason for this is that what we have here is that Paul begins a particular thought in verse 1, and it is as if something he, something he says in this verse causes him to make some clarifying remarks before he moves forward with his previous thought. Now, most commentators view verses 2 through 13 as the clarifying thought, and then verse 14 is Paul picking up his original thought in verse 1. They will say this because the phrase, for this reason, is used at the beginning of each of these verses. If you notice verse 1, it says, for this reason. And at the beginning of verse 14, it says, for this reason. But I take a little bit different view here and therefore tend to agree with Sinclair Ferguson who states that he believes that Paul doesn't really pick up his original thought from verse 1 of chapter 3 until we get to verse 1 of chapter 4. If you notice in both of those verses, we see the phrase prisoner. Verse 1, we see prisoner of Christ Jesus. And then verse 1 of chapter 4, we see prisoner of the Lord. And so the prayer recorded for us in verses 14 through 21 of chapter 3 comes to Paul as he is contemplating on the glory of what he has been writing and pauses to ask God to bless his readers so that they would be able to grasp just how blessed they are to be recipients of the love of God in Christ Jesus. Now the reason I think that the entirety of chapter 3 in Ephesians 3 or that, that the entirety of chapter 3 in Ephesians serves in some way as a parenthetical thought is because of the natural link that we see between the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 4. What was Paul talking about at the end of chapter 2? We see there that Paul was describing the temple motif that God has called us out of darkness into light. He has called us into fellowship with himself and fellowship with one another and that he is building his people together to be his dwelling place by the Spirit. That's what we see at the end of Ephesians 2. And at the beginning of chapter 4, it is as if Paul says in the light of this glorious calling and privilege of being part of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is the temple or dwelling place of God, then we should endeavor to walk worthy of this calling and be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So I think the natural progression of his thought is from the end of chapter 2 to chapter 4. And so I believe the word that caused Paul to digress at the beginning of chapter 3 and then pick up his thought again in chapter 4 is the word prisoner. Now why would this word prisoner cause Paul to stop and make some clarifying statements before proceeding? Now we've taken some time to go through and look at some of the main truths and themes being relayed to us in chapters 1 and 2 of Ephesians. And what we have seen is that the whole mood of these chapters is that of victory and glory and power and authority. The, the very power and authority of God and of His Son, Jesus Christ. That's the, that's the whole mood of chapters 1 and 2 of Ephesians. I think this is particularly seen in Paul's prayer in Ephesians 1, 15-23, and also back in Ephesians 1, 9 and 10. If you would notice with me back in chapter 1, and notice verse 18. And see this theme of the authority of Christ, the power of Christ, the glory and victory of Christ. He says, Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, 
What are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places? far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Further look back in Ephesians 1 and notice verses 9 and 10. Here we see... What is the purpose of God that has been realized in Christ? It is the uniting of all things in heaven and things on earth. William Hendrickson writes the following on what we have read here. He says, Literally everything, things in heaven, things on earth, everything above us, around us, within us, below us, everything spiritual and everything material has even now been brought under Christ rule. This is the clear conclusion from reading Ephesians 1 and 2. Christ has been coronated as king over all. He has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. And as Philippians 2 words it, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And so what we have here in verse 1 of chapter 3 coming right on the heels of this great reality concerning the kingship and the authority of Christ is really striking and shocking to the ears. If Paul be an apostle of King Jesus, if he be an ambassador of the Lord Jesus Christ, what does he mean that he is a prisoner? That doesn't make any sense. It doesn't seem to fit with what he has just written in chapters 1 and 2. And so Paul feels like this calls for explanation as seen in his conclusion to his explanation in verses, verse 13. Notice verse 13 of Ephesians 3. He says, So I ask you to not lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. So Paul realizes that the fact that he is a prisoner could cause his readers to struggle over the truths that he has proclaimed in chapters 1 and chapter 2. What we have presented for us is a great disconnect that Paul realizes. S.M. Ball writes the following about this disconnect. He says, Paul recognizes the apparent disconnect between the exultant victory and enthronement of Christ to all authority in this age in the church, which he had just taught them on in chapters 1 and 2. So there's a disconnect between that and his imprisonment and therefore the apparent defeat and impotence of Christ apostolic representative to the nations which of course is Paul and so the question that Paul seeks to address is this how does the Messiah reign if his people suffer at the hands of a conquered world in Hebrews 2 8 and 9 we see something of this tension as well in Hebrews 2 8 it says that everything is in subjection to Christ and nothing is outside of his control and it also says and yet at the present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him crowned with glory and honor. So there seems to be a disconnect between what's being said there. And so Paul's digression in verses 2 through 12 of Ephesians 3 is his answer to this irony or to this seeming paradox. Hendrickson, again, commenting on this passage, states he says, Paul may be in chains. But the gospel is not hindered. And Christ does indeed rule. The mystery of worldwide Christianity, which is what's being taught, Jews and Gentiles all being brought as one body under Christ, the mystery of worldwide Christianity is now divinely revealed and effectively set into action. Christ rules over all of his enemies in such a way that whatever the enemy brings against the church ultimately accomplishes the purpose of Christ for the good of his church. As Tertullian from the 2nd century famously states, he says, But nothing, whatever, is accomplished by your cruelties. The cruelties here being the cruelties of the unbelieving world. He says, Nothing is accomplished by your cruelties, each more exquisite than the last, 
It is the bait that wins men for our school. We multiply whenever we are mown down by you. The blood of Christians is seed. This is, of course, where we get that famous saying that has been passed down throughout the ages to describe the reign of Christ in the midst of his enemies, which states, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And so you see the Apostle Paul is seeking to protect the Ephesian believers from making a fatal conclusion regarding his imprisonment. That fatal conclusion would be as follows, as described by S.M. Ball. He says that they may have concluded, perhaps Christ's exaltation to cosmic rule, described so vividly for us in Ephesians 1 and 2, is a shattered failure, since he cannot even protect Paul from custody and various other unnamed afflictions. So this leads us to an important statement that Paul makes in verse 1 concerning his imprisonment. He states that he is a prisoner for Christ Jesus. Now this statement is of utmost importance in reminding the Ephesian believers that although he is imprisoned by the Romans as brought on by the Jews, that ultimately Christ is reigning and ruling over all things And so in reality, this imprisonment is not an indication that Christ's cosmic rule is a shattered failure, but that even this is evidence of Christ's absolute authority over all things and how he uses this authority for the good of his church and to move history towards its intended purposes. So Paul is a prisoner of Rome by the appointment of Christ Jesus. He then goes on to say that this imprisonment is on behalf of you Gentiles. This statement is both a statement regarding the actual events that led to his imprisonment from a merely human standpoint and a statement regarding the purposes of Christ in the imprisonment of Paul. If you would, turn with me to the book of Acts. And let us notice Acts chapter 21, verses 27 through 33. Acts 21, verse 27 through 33. And here we see the occasion that lands Paul in prison. Verse 27 states, When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, He has even brought Greeks or Gentiles into the temple. Sounds familiar, right? What we've got going on in Ephesians 1 through 3. That he has even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, and notice where Trophimus is from. They had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city. And they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains." And so we, see clear, so we see clearly here that Paul was literally in prison for what reason? It was literally because he was accused of acting on the very truths contained in Ephesians 2 regarding the Gentiles being, being included as fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. It was on behalf of the Gentiles that Paul was being persecuted by the Jews and the Romans, but this was according to the divine plan and wisdom of Christ who uses Paul's imprisonment for the advancement of the gospel message that all who will trust in Christ shall be saved. In Philippians, Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, this imprisonment, has really served to advance the gospel. So it is as if Paul was reassuring the Ephesian believers that his imprisonment is not outside the sovereign rule of Christ and is in fact being used to spread the mystery of Christ to the whole known world at the time. And thus his suffering is ultimately for the glory of Christ's elect people, both Jew and Gentile alike. 
Well, this leads us to verses 2 through 6 in Ephesians 3, where Paul elaborates on the revelation that he has received concerning the mystery of Christ. In verse 2, we see that Paul was given a stewardship of God's grace for the sake of his Gentile audience. So this concept of stewardship is important here. In Romans 1 verse 1, Paul says that he was called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. And so it is important that we realize that the message that Paul has proclaimed to the Ephesians was not Paul's message. It did not originate with him. The message is God's message, and God has entrusted this message to Paul, and Paul entrusted this message to Timothy, and then charged Timothy to entrust the same message to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And so today the elders of each local body of Christ is given the same charge that Paul was given, which is to steward the message of Christ, the mystery of Christ, for the sake of God's elect people. Move to verse 3. Now, one difference in current day elders and Paul is the means by which we have come to know this mystery or message. Today, we we receive the message by revelation as as it has been given to us in Scripture. Whereas Paul was given direct revelation to deliver or set down in Holy Scripture for our benefit. So it says he has received this this mystery by revelation. So the first thing we need to take from this verse is that we are dependent upon the special revelation of God with regard to the message of salvation in Christ Jesus. Our confession teaches us that general revelation is not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and His will which is necessary into salvation, but rather the Scriptures are are alone able to make a man wise unto salvation. He then makes a statement in verse 3, as I have written briefly. Now there's various opinions on what particular writings Paul is referring to here, but I think the most natural understanding of what he's referring to is the first two chapters of Ephesians. So he says, I've just written about this briefly in chapters 1 and 2, And I continue to write about it now. So now we move to verse number four. And here Paul says, when you read this, here again I think it is evident that what Paul was referring to is the epistle to the Ephesians. He says, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. This mystery or unveiled secret has Christ as both its source and its substance. Hendrickson writes again, one can say the mystery is, in a sense, Christ himself. That is, Christ in all his glorious riches actually dwelling through his spirit in the hearts and lives of both Jews and Gentiles united in one body, the church. So this is of utmost importance before we read verses 5 and 6. We must understand that the interpretive key for all of Scripture is the person and work of Christ. Let us read verse 5. It says, This mystery of Christ was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed in His holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So what we're dealing with here is the issue of biblical hermeneutics. And really this could take up an entire sermon. But I want to just briefly state the importance of understanding that we are to have a Christ-centered approach to the interpretation of the Bible. In verse 5, Paul mentions that the sons of men in other generations, which is a clear reference to those who lived prior to the coming of Christ. He is referring to those in the Old Testament. It's important for us to realize that Jesus is the theological center of the Old Testament. This means that the person and work of Christ as presented in the New Testament including His birth, His life, His teaching, His death, His resurrection, His ascension, the promise of His return, and the apostolic teaching concerning Christ, all of this together constitute the singular reality that unifies and explains everything that appears in the Old Testament. So Christ is the key to understanding everything in the Old Testament. So we are to read the Old Testament and understand it in the light of of the clear and full revelation of Jesus Christ as He is revealed in the New Testament. Augustine famously stated, In the Old Testament, the New is concealed. In the New, the Old is revealed. 
This leads us to verse 6, which reads, The mystery is, or this mystery is, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now, why is this statement such an amazing statement? It is so amazing because it does exactly what Augustine said. This New Testament revelation reveals to us what was concealed in the Old Testament. You see, the Old Testament most certainly prophesied and hinted toward the inclusion of the Gentiles, but what exactly that meant was not made clear in those generations. Now I want to read just a smattering of verses that show us that God's plan all along was to bring the Gentiles in. But in these verses we don't see the fullness of what is meant until we read Ephesians 3, verse 6. So in all the following passages we see Gentiles streaming into Zion to worship the one true God of Israel. Genesis 12, 3 says, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So a clear prophetic prophecy about the fact that all the families, all the Gentile nations will be brought in and blessed by God. Genesis 17, 4. Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. Psalm 86, verse 9. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord. Isaiah 2, 2. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. Isaiah 60 verse 3 And nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Isaiah 66 verse 20 And they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord on horses and in chariots and in litters and on mules and on dromedaries to my holy mountain, Jerusalem. And in Micah chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and it shall be lifted up above the hill and peoples shall flow to it and many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his way and that we, that we may walk in his paths. <clears throat> so we read all these scriptures that tell us that it has been prophesied that all the nations, all the Gentile, Gentile nations, people from all these nations, Gentile peoples, will be brought in to, the, to, to worship God. But we also realize that in the Old Testament, we see this concept that the Gentiles appear in those places as captives or as subject peoples bearing tributes to God, who come in judgment and for the glory of a revived, conquering Israel. And so, the context of those passages seems to suggest that the Gentile nations, although they're brought in, they're subservient to Israel. That they're still second class compared to Israel. That's, that's what we seem to see in these prophecies. And for time's sake, I'll just mention one passage that, display, that displays this in the Old Testament. Genesis 49.10 reads, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. The, the peoples here being, of course, the Gentile peoples. So in all of these Old Testament passages, although it is clear that God is going to bring in Gentile nations to worship him, it appears that the Gentiles will still be a separate people who come as enslaved captives or subjects. And thus, we see the glory of the mystery that has been revealed to us in Ephesians 3, verse 6. What we see here is that Paul says, the Gentiles do not come in as enslaved captives or subjects, but as those who are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus. It's interesting in Greek there, all three of those statements have the word together attached to it. They are fellow heirs together, members of the same body together, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus together. And this is only possible, this is, this is the only possible understanding that we can have, well, number one, because the scripture reveals it very clearly for us, but also, um, as we understand 
the whole theme and message of Scripture as revealed to us in covenant theology that we've discussed already this morning. The only possible conclusion to this one message of salvation through Jesus Christ for all people who come to Him is that all people who come to Him will be equal. They will be together as one people, one body. Not two separate peoples, but one people of God. That's the only possible understanding of the very message of God's salvation. Hendrickson writes the following. He says, What the Old Testament prophets did not make clear was that in connection with the coming Messiah and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the old theocracy would be completely abolished and in its place would arise a new organism in which the Gentiles and the Jews would be placed on a footing of perfect equality. So Paul makes it very clear that God's unveiled secret or mystery has to do not merely with an alliance of Jew and Gentile, or perhaps even a friendly agreement to live together in peace, or even an outward combination or partnership, but on the contrary, with complete and permanent fusion, a perfect, a perfect spiritual union of formerly clashing elements is brought into one new organism, even a new humanity as it is revealed to us in Ephesians 2. And so brothers and sisters, here we can clearly see how Paul is able to say in verse 13 of chapter 3 that what he is suffering for is truly for the glory of his Ephesian readers and by extension for the glory of us as we have read of his insight into the mystery of Christ today. So I want to close with the following. I want to close by answering the following question. Do the truths we have heard today from this passage matter for us today? Well, the answer is yes. They matter much and in every way. You see, we sit here today, and as far as I know, every one of us are Gentile by ethnicity, and yet we have heard in our hearing that if we are united to Christ by faith, then we become co-heirs with Christ, members of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, and partakers of the promise that we will reign with Christ forever and that God will be our God and we will be His people. That promise is for us today. And so my encouragement and my plea for you today is this. Take time to contemplate and reflect on just how loved you are by God in Christ Jesus. I believe the greatest act of faith there is is to take God at His Word when He tells you how much you are loved. Brothers and sisters, believe that God loves you as much as He says He does because He has proven it. He has displayed His great love for us in the giving of His only begotten Son. And further, I urge you to take heart and believe that Jesus Christ is on His throne and He is ruling all things to the good of His church. And so, if you are loved by Christ, and Christ is ruling all things for your good, then you have no reason or excuse to despair or to lose heart, as He was warning the Ephesians to not lose heart. But rather, you have every reason to give yourself afresh to God and to put to death your sin and to commit yourself to growing in holiness by attending to the means of grace and to commit yourself to loving your brothers and sisters in Christ. You have every reason to do that today, to do that afresh today, to commit yourself to God, to commit yourself to putting to death your sins, commit yourself to growing in holiness, and commit yourself to loving one another as Christ Jesus has loved us. The missionary Jim Elliott once wrote in his journal, to gaze and glory and to give oneself again to God, what more could a man ask? Oh, the fullness, pleasure, sheer excitement of knowing God on earth. May that be our experience here today as we have been reminded once again of the mystery of Christ made plain for us. Now to those in here who may be unbelievers, you are still strangers to, and aliens to God. You are separated from Christ and you are without hope and without God in the world. If you remain in your condition, you will perish. We read that in Psalm 1 today. If you remain in your condition, you will perish under the wrath of God 
and will be eternally separated from the covenant presence of God and from the people of God. But here is the good news for you. You do not have to remain in that condition. There is hope for you if you will turn to Christ. For all who turn to Christ in faith will be welcomed into the very family of God as equal heirs, members, and partakers with all of God's people. So don't be stubborn. Don't be foolish. Come to Christ today and do not harden your hearts. Let's pray together. Holy Father, we...